don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello, welcome to Second Captain Saturday. Oh, my David here with Kieran Murphy. Hey, Murph. Hey, Owen. How's it going? It's going okay. We have a slightly different kind of a conversation for you this week. We're talking to somebody who we've been asking to do this show for many seasons now. The time is right for him today, and we're really delighted that it is. Johnny Watterson of the Irish Times is one of the best sports writers in the country. In fact, he's currently the Irish Sports Journalist of the Year. He's also had an impact in his work beyond sport. He was the journalist responsible for one of the bravest and most significant moments in Irish journalism, full stop, when he broke the story and revealed the truth about George Gibney for the first time. That was in the Sunday Tribune in 1994, naming Gibney as a child sex offender and reporting the accounts of several of Gibney's survivors, despite the fact that George Gibney had yet to face trial. But most of our chat today is going to focus on one deeply personal part of his life. Johnny spent his early years on the Falls Road in Belfast in the 60s and early 70s, living in a flat above the corner shop run by his family, enjoying his childhood in a lot of ways, but also witnessing the early days of the Troubles firsthand. And on the night of January 29th, 1973, his big brother Peter was shot dead on the street outside the shop. Peter was only 14 years old. Johnny was 12 at the time. Now, there are no records to say anyone was ever arrested or charged with the murder of his brother. And just in the last few years, Johnny's decided to try to find out what happened. Firstly, through an appeal for help in the Irish News newspaper in Belfast. And later, he wrote just an absolutely extraordinary piece for his own paper, The Irish Times. Now he's ready to talk to us at length about his memories of Peter, his reasons for seeking the truth all these years later, and what sort of developments there have been since he first went public with this back in 2018. So, like I said, a, a different kind of a show today, but we will, of course, also be ranking this sporting life of Johnny Watterson, and Johnny has an amazing sporting life too, because his late father, George, is something of a GA legend, Murph. Yeah, so George Watterson uh, was the captain of an Ulster final-winning Antrim team uh, that actually looked on the verge of revolutionising Gaelic football in the mid-1940s. So they loved a hand pass on. Yeah, so uh, I read. Which was light years away from the catch-and-kick style of the game at the time. So they, they beat a brilliant Cavan team in the Ulster final in 1946. They met Kerry. They were flying high uh, going into this All-Ireland semi-final against Kerry. Kerry, as used to be the way, struck a blow for traditional football by beating them 2-7 to 10 points. <laughs> uh, the manner of victory, though, on was pockmarked by persistent Kerry fouling which left a very bitter taste. A taste so bitter, in fact, that Antrim lodged an objection saying that Kerry's fouling brought the game into disrepute. Uh, the objection, unsurprisingly, uh, was, <laughs> was thrown out. But George Waterson's place in the folklore of Antrim GA is uh, very much secure. He was a Tigerish centre-back or full-back in later uh, years in his career. Uh, and obviously a leader, a captain on really what was the last great Antrim football team. Mm. So we are talking about royalty here. You know what, I'm, I'm starting to think there's a there's an issue here, considering that he's the reigning sports journalist of the year. And I haven't yet mentioned that Johnny's also a former hockey international. I feel, especially with his father's history, he might be a bit overqualified for this particular <laughs> slot, to be honest with you. Murph, what's the latest in the race to become second captain's greatest non-sports person, sports person, 2021? I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. <laughs> Well, Owen, with just a couple of weeks to go, Malcolm Gladwell is still hanging on grimly to top spot with 88 points. But things could be, as you have just laid out there, could be about to get interesting. World-renowned architect Yvonne Farrell tore into the exchanges last week, only to end up with 77 points. But could Johnny Watterson's bid for the top spot yield even greater dividends? He has some serious game. Enough game 
to get beyond 85 points and a place in the top three, maybe? We are about to find Text out. Text us on 51551. Tweet at Second Captain's email, editor at secondcaptains.com. First up, here's Saint Sister. My brilliant friend traces where I should end and where I should begin. He touches me with all of the need and of what that goes on between us. Nobody knows but wherever we go, he assures me I'm worthy of all of it. Sometimes we lie together and we cry together. And we scream, what's the harm in it? My brilliant friend and I always intended to break up and take up again. I don't have words to describe all the words that we make in our cat kingdom. He stopped the calls till the night of the fall Now I phone him whenever I want My brilliant friend and I always My Brilliant Friend is the name of that brilliant tune by Saint Sister from their latest album, Where I Should End. Our guest today on Second Captain Saturday is a former Ireland hockey international who's also one of the country's top sports journalists. His work for more than 25 years has taken him around the world and he recently returned from Tokyo where he was covering the Olympic Games for the Irish Times. As a young boy growing up on the Falls Road during the Troubles, he tragically lost his older brother Peter who was shot and killed outside the family shop aged just 14. He and his mother immediately moved to Dublin where he began the rest of his life. But in the past few years, he's been trying to find out the truth behind what happened to his brother. Johnny Watterson, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us about this. Thank you, Owen. It's not a problem. We really appreciate you talking about this, Johnny. It's such a personal thing. Can you tell us, first of all, about where you grew up and what it was like at the time? Sure. I grew up in Falls Road in West Belfast. Um, the family owned a little corner shop on the corner of the Falls and Rockville Street. So the shop looked onto the Falls Road. Um, I grew up there largely, I was born in 1960, so 
Troubles began in 69, so I was nine years old when it kicked off. Um, my father, my mother, myself, my brother were the family members. Um, my dad died in 1969 when I was nine years old. Um, he was a GAA player and he was quite well known in the community. And the shop itself was, was well known mm-hmm. because it, people came in, bought their papers and cigarettes and sweets and had the chats and so it was a real little uh, hive of activity uh, from 7.30 in the morning until 10.30 at night, real long hours, but it stayed open those, those hours back in the day. Um, I suppose there's two different parts to growing up there. There was pre-Troubles and post-Troubles. Well, tell us about pre-Troubles first because this might not be the image we think of when we think of that area around that time. You know, pre-Troubles, Falls Road was a tree-lined road, lovely big trees from way down the lower falls, right up to where I lived, which was probably mid-falls. Um, there were fields nearby, which is now a Beach Mountain Leisure Centre. It was called Riddles Field. There was a jay pitch at the top of our street called McCrory Park. There was a bog meadow uh, not far away in St. James's. Uh, there was a falls park uh, right beside us. So there was a lot of green space, uh, not, very, not like the inner city that I suspect people have images of now mm. or what they saw on TV in later years. Um, looking back now, it was a sort of perfect childhood, very happy, was okay at school, tough school, but um, I got on very well. And I really ran around with kids in the street, in through the front doors, out through the back doors all the time. Everyone knew everybody else. It was your almost a cliche, I suppose, is what I'm describing as a, these terraced red brick houses that all ran off the Falls Road. A cliche, dozens and dozens of them. A cliche, but probably not the cliche that's in most of our minds. It is really interesting just to, to hear what it was actually like, for, unfortunately, for only a short time of your life before the troubles really kicked off. I have heard you say before that in, in a weird way, I don't want people to take this the wrong way, but that there was an excitement uh, when, when the troubles were happening, when this thing was unfolding in front of you. Oh, absolutely. Especially when the soldiers arrived. I mean, at, at the beginning, it, it was fear, maybe, because we could see lorries coming past the front front of our house anyway, full of people's belongings, sofas and lampshades and beds. And they were people coming from the lower falls whose houses had been burned, who'd, who had been attacked by loyalists and, and the, well, they were the B-specials. Mm. Um, so th- you saw this parade of people leaving the lower falls who had no homes to go to. And as a kid then, I just saw it as an exciting sort of spectacle, this trail of lorries and vans just trailing past the house with no real knowledge of what was taking place, although the, we, we were talking about it. And then the soldiers arrived and that was great fun. We gave them tea and biscuits. We got to know their names. There was a... They were outside our shop. I brought them coffee. We knew which ones like Kit Kats. We knew which ones like penguins. That was... All brilliant. We'd stand around them looking at their guns, holding their, well, holding their guns. Uh, Really? Yeah, yeah. No, they'd hand you a gun and obviously they'd disengage it. (laughs) But they were, these are 17 year old kids from Bridge End and from Warrington and from, you know, places like that. And I I would have been nine or 10. So they were only seven or eight years older than me. They'd put us in the Jeeps, back of the Saracens, and it was all great fun and friendly. And certainly the the mothers really loved the soldiers because they could see how young they were. 
like my mum would say, they're just kids, they're just kids, and they'd come in for their cigarettes and their newspaper. And, you know, it was it was like that for about a year, I suspect, from mm. 1969. Um, and then it'll turn sour. What do you think of when I ask you about your brother Peter now? What do you remember of him? I remember trailing around after him all the time, <laughs> just as a younger brother did, and him getting a bit impatient if I was, you know... He was a year and a half older than me, which, you know, if you're 12 and he's 13 and a half, there's a big difference at that age sometimes. But no, I I just saw him as the, the guy I shared the room with, although we didn't have to. You know, we got on very well. Um, we did most things together, played football in the streets, um, hung around with the same group of kids. It, it was very much um, not a standout thing, just an everyday thing with him you know he was just there all the time and I was there all the time and it was like you just did everything all the time we were in the same school St Kevin's Primary School and then he went to St Mary's which was down Lower Falls beside of his flats and a year or so later I went down there as well so we were very much in sync with each other and what we did um, mm. Sport was something that bonded you as well. Uh, he supported Man United, you supported Celtic. Is that right? Did I get that the wrong way around or no? Yeah, that's right. And George Best was in the middle there that everyone just adored, <laughs> I suppose. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, he was Man United, I was Celtic. And we had posters on the wall and, you know, we'd watch all the matches. Of course, Celtic won European Cup in the 60s and Man United's best playing was just... Was he the fifth Beatle? Yeah, he was. Mm. Of course he was. And uh, football was everything. Uh, although my father is a GAA player and there was a GAA pitch at the top of the road, McCrory Park. Um, it was football on the streets and handball at the corner and pigeons. Uh, they were the three things. And certainly I remember with myself and Peter, it was the bike, the boots and the ball, only three important things in, in our lives. Yeah. Bike, football boots and the ball. It sounds like you're really close to him. Yeah, uh, it's hard looking back now because of how young we were. The closeness was a sort of respect I had for the older brother. The fact I knew he'd look out for me, even though I irritated him all the time by being there. And it was a very typical brother relationship, I think. Yeah, yeah, it was. There was no real affection shown. You know, it it wasn't, come here, buddy, you know, Mm. stay there. (laughs) You know, I'd stay there. And uh, it was like that. It's interesting that most of those memories that you talk about are of your relationship with him and how you guys were, what you did together. Is it hard for you to remember much about what he was actually like as a person? It is difficult, yeah. I've thought about it before. Um, I just saw him as the, the sort of influence, on an influence on me, I suppose. The A person I wanted to copy all the time. You know, if he liked Adidas boots, I wanted Adidas boots. My old prism of remembering him is his influence on me rather than the sort of character was it it didn't matter he was just my brother everything he did was part of his character you know our whole life was what he was rather than a was he a kind person or was he a loud person he wasn't loud he wasn't kind he was a smart kid mm. he did very well at school and he, he looked after me and the looking after me was all I really cared about you know <laughs> uh, and that's still how I see it can you talk us through, Johnny, the night of January the 29th, 1973? Where were you Where were you and your mum that night? 
Yeah, we lived behind a shop uh, on the falls. Uh, the shop was closed and the sitting room was directly behind the shop. And I was sitting with my mom and we just heard gunfire that was very close, um, which is wasn't unusual. Um, I ran, I, I looked out the, the window and I could see out the front window of the shops that bullet holes had come through the plate glass. So I ran out and I saw my friend Jim Toner. He was holding on to the grill, uh, the covered shop windows, and he was screaming, I'm on fire. And I ran over to him and another person from across the road where there was a chipper called the Continental. And so I was holding Jim and this other person was holding Jim. He was slowly falling to the ground. And when he fell to the ground, I sort of stepped back and someone said, there's your Peter. So I turned around and although he was just a few feet away, I hadn't seen him. He was he was lying on the ground. And it, it to me, it looked as though he'd just fallen asleep on the ground, but he'd been shot and people wouldn't let me go over to him. So my mum came out then and there was a fuss of, no, don't go over, don't go over. So he was put into the back of a car and taken to the Royal M. And a car had driven past, we heard the shots and it had driven down the falls. They'd shot at a group of boys who were standing outside the shop. Jim Toner was one, my brother was the other. They were both hit and it, it drove down the Donegal Road towards a loyalist area called The Village, which is around, for people who don't know, it's around the Windsor Park area. Did you <clears throat> did you know, when you ran out and, and you helped your friend Jim, did you know that anyone else had been shot at all or you were just so focused on him that you didn't even realise was somebody else lying down? Yeah, when I looked out originally, I saw someone against the window. So I ran, I ran past Peter basically to Jim. I didn't see him. I didn't know I'd run past anybody. I just knew that someone had been shot where the window was because the bullets had come in. So uh, it wasn't until someone said, that's your Peter, that I turned around and saw him then. It it's a, sounds like a busy kind of a crossroads uh, with a lot of, lot of people around. Uh, what do you remember of this scene and, and, and how people around you were reacting? It was a very busy crossroads. There was always trouble there. It was the junction of a road called the Donegal Road and Falls Road. There was a chip shop there called Aldo's. There's a famous bar called the Rock Bar, which is just one block away. So there was always people there, either standing outside the chipper or going to and from the pub or standing outside our shop talking. Um, when the shooting happened, it was chaotic because people dived into the Continental. They weren't sure where the shots were coming from or going. And then within a minute, there's a sort of deadly silence after the shots. You c could hear the car just going into the distance. And then it was just chaotic. People were screaming and cars were turning in the road and black taxis were stopping and people were jumping out of cars and... It was, it was all very loud and panicked. Johnny, you were only 12, is that right? I was 12, yes. I mean, were you old enough to understand what had just happened here? Did, did you realise straight away what was going on here? Yeah, I did realise that just going back to October, the previous year, a soldier was shot dead in the shop. Right. Exactly the same circumstances. Um, a car coming down shot at a, a jeep and went down the Donegal Road again to get away. And the soldier died in the shop and 
maybe 10 feet away from where Peter was shot. So what, it was almost like the same thing happening. Although I wasn't aware that Peter was dead until we got to the hospital with my mom. Um, but I was aware of what happened because, yeah, I'd seen it happen before and there was shooting all the time. And it was, although I didn't know how serious it was, I knew that was serious. Who brought you to the hospital? A local doctor called Dr Bunting, who was a friend of my father's, a, a GA player um, and the local doctor. He had a surgery on the Falls Road and he knew my mum and he drove us down, uh, parked the car as you could on the Falls Road in those days and went down and said, is he OK? And I just remember nurse saying to my mother, no, he's not. And then I thought it was pretty sort of cold. Mm. Um Maybe it's just the way it was done then. And they were dealing with a lot of people coming in all the time. Um, and we were just put in an anteroom and then the doctor came over and said, no, he's dead. And I don't know if, it, I'm sorry, the right words all these years later, Johnny, like it's horrific to hear about this. And I know you wrote about it in the Irish Times. You wrote an amazing mm. description of the journey home from hospital up the Falls Road. If you don't mind me quoting a little bit. Nope. As I lie in the back of the car, cross my mother's lap and look up through the back window at the passing street lights, I sense from the depth of her silence and the tremor of her leg that her toll is great. Through her clothes and from the strange pitch of her voice, I sense she has seen her world change and is no longer the mother she used to be. That will never change. And the misery that has crept in will never leave. I mean, it's beautifully written, obviously, but... I'm amazed that you, you sensed that straight away, this change in your mother. Yeah, I remember the journey home. Um, it wasn't very far. It's 600 yards from the Royal to my to my house. And I suppose one of the reasons I remember it was because I could remember my mum's voice changing and I could remember the tremor in her leg. And a lot of the lights were gone, so it was in shadows and you'd sweep around the corner from darkness and you'd go on you know, past the husk of the Broadway cinema that had been burnt out at that stage and up to where our house was then to be a little bit more light and there'd be crossroads lights and I was just down below the, I suppose, the line of the window. And it's just a clear memory I have of maybe four minutes in the car and, yeah, the misery that crept in there never left her. You moved to Dublin straight after the funeral? <clears throat> You, you moved down? Day, the day after the funeral, yeah. And that was it then? You never went back? I certainly never went back to live? I never went back to live. My mum went back four years later because, well, she'd get money. Um, I went to live with relatives in Dublin. Okay. Which there was a sort of, I mean, nothing, nothing good came out of it, but that was serendipitous because my family were lovely. <laughs> and I probably wouldn't have found that out, you know, if I'd mm. remained in Belfast. But the day after the funeral in Milltown, yes, I went never to return to live there anyway. So did you ever talk about this with your mum, what had happened to Peter in, in the subsequent years? No, she, don't, she wouldn't talk about it. Um, in her later years, she used to talk about, I think there was a, a touch of guilt. There was no reason for her to be guilty, but uh, she, she went to the headmaster in St. Mary's school. His name was Brother Bagley. And she asked her his advice on what to do with a 14-year-old at night in West Belfast. She wanted to keep us in. He said, no, you can't, keep, you can't keep kids in all the time. So she was, I think, felt a bit of guilt for Peter being out at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, if he hadn't have been out, maybe it wouldn't have happened, but someone would have been shot there anyway. So It's so hard. And she's obviously, she clearly had a lot of love for both her boys and, and, yeah. and then got you out of there straight away. She'd obviously just seen enough at that point. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, she was. Uh, she'd seen the soldier being killed, you know, four months before. Um, you know, soldiers crying in our sitting room. I'd never seen that before, and it was quite a arresting sight for me. They'd thrown their guns on the floor and they were crying, lying, sitting up against the wall. You know, the driver of their Land Rover was dying on the floor outside. Um, so she'd seen that and she'd seen the older kids go to prison and the ones my age would be going to prison. And she knew, she knew then, you know, you can't just up and leave. Your, you, it's, it's very hard to, to leave a community mm. that you're embedded in and where your kids are going to school and they're actually happy even though what's going on around them isn't very good. And but she was lucky she had sisters in Dublin and unlike other people, the refugees, I suppose I was a refugee except I went to my family instead of Cormanstown or Butlins. Um, so in that respect, I, I was lucky. You know. Why did you more recently decide to go back to all this and try to find out or at least try to get a better idea of who did it and what happened. Why now? I did now because my mum died 2016 and I knew she wouldn't have been able to deal with me doing anything about it, but the reality is no one did anything about it. Um, the police and the army didn't turn up until the next day, first light, so that was maybe 10 hours later. They didn't do much forensics, they didn't talk to anyone. And they didn't stay around for very long, so nothing was done. Um, so this was when the historical inquiries team were being set up. So I said, well, I'm going to do something. And that's when it started. I didn't tell my mother I was doing this. I did it on, on the quiet for the beginning. And then when she died, I made it more public because I wanted to talk to people and see, see if people would come and talk to me. So that's why it went public. It was my own need, I suppose, my my personal need it wasn't a big picture issue it was my personal need to find out what happened because you don't leave a, de a kid dead in the street and just walk away and say oh well it doesn't matter because it does matter so what information did you have i mean how do you go about trying to trying to investigate a murder from 1973 you know in the next century yeah what you do is do an interview with the local paper in West Belfast, that's the Irish News, and you you say, look, my dad was well known as the captain of the Antrim team back in the day, and, you know, we used to live here, my brother's shot, nothing was done about it, and I'm going to start looking. So they did a, the interview and put it on the front page, which was a surprise to me. Um, and the, the only reason, the only reason I did that was to try and get people to step forward and make contact. Um, and it, it's, it sort of worked. You know, a lot of people did come forward. The basic information you had was that there was a, a UDA member at the time who was murdered, am I right in saying, was killed mm. in reprisal. So it, it was thought that he might have been the person who had done it, but that might not actually be the case. Y yeah, this came afterwards when I, I spoke to the historical inquiries team. They did a report. And they came up with a name, a guy called Francis, who was from the Loyalist Village area, found within hours, shot dead uh, just three streets away. Um, and because he was in the UVF, UDA UVF, the assumption was he did it. Um, There's no evidence that he did do it. And from the people I've spoken to, 
since he probably didn't do it. When you say the people you've spoken to, you've spoke, you've met high-ranking members, or I should say, ranking members of the IRA and and the UDA and yeah. this kind of stuff. I I don't know how much you can say about what went on in those meetings. I think there's a certain amount of off the record stuff. But can you tell us what it was like to be talking to these people about this topic? Yeah, firstly, Adam Cadwallader from the Fenucan Centre was helping with this, and the Fenucan Centre were really, really helpful. So myself and Anne met a former UDA, I call them volunteers, commanders, whatever you want to call them, and a former IRA guy. Um, the loyalist was aligned with a guy called John McMichael, who was well-known in loyalist circles back then. And the IRA guy was very well-known. And we met on a in a building on the Peace Line in Belfast between the Shankill and the Falls Road. And there was just myself and Anne and the two guys um, they told me not to take any notes and not to record anything. So it's all for memory. I wrote it down afterwards, but it was a very strange experience. The IRA guy was saying how disciplined the IRA was and that they didn't do sectarian killings. The UDA guy was saying, well, we used to meet in a pub, a couple of pubs in the village and elsewhere, We'd have a few pints. Uh, someone might say anyone got a gun and someone say yes or no. If they didn't have a gun, someone will go and get a gun. Uh, we'll go and do a Fenian tonight. And they go and do a Fenian and they come back and continue drinking. And he said that happened all the time. And he said that's probably what happened. They were in one of the number of pubs that he mentioned. He named them. And he, na- he described a guy who smoked a thin cigars who was a... You, Loyalist commander, and they get pissed in the pub, and someone say, "You got a gun? Let's do a fenian," and that's what they do. So, so where are you at with this now? I mean, how do you, I mean? How much do you know for certain? I was contacted recently by someone who said they know who did it. They're compromised because the person who allegedly did it was married to her best friend and there's children in that family and she's conflicted now what to do and that's where it sits so she gave a sort of detailed account of how she came about the information which which rings true and she's now thinking of whether she's going to name the person or not name the person and that's where it sits how head melting is that for you to be potentially so close to this kind of information? Yeah, it's been almost a year now. And when I did that first interview, it's I couldn't have expected it to, to work out like this. This is exactly what I wanted to happen. Exactly what I wanted to happen. Someone would come forward and say, yes, I know who did it. Now, it was a real, real, real long shot. Um, but that's exactly what has happened. But the, the conflict with this woman now is something she has to work out in her life and whether she wants to go, go forward anymore or not is, you know, is, is a question for her. I, I can't do anything. I can't push her. I can't, I just have to let her work that out herself. There's nothing I can do. It's, I send her an email. I've sent her emails and outlining my position um, I said I wouldn't prosecute this person. I didn't want to see a prosecution. What I wanted to know what was ha- what happened 
and how this all came about and how a 14-year-old kid was left dead on the street. Whether it was as pointless as that UDA commander explained to me that it sometimes was, that they just went out to do a Fenian and that was that was it. Mm. And that was likely it, but I, I still don't know. And it's in her court, you know. It's her, and I know she's troubled by this conflict because she's written me long emails, mm. but I can't do anything. I don't know what I can do. I'm just hoping she'll come to a resolution and let me know. Johnny, how did that feel when that email popped in to your inbox and you, you read it out for the first time? Yeah, I'd read it a couple of times. And because I'd been talking to Anne Cadwallander, who's dealt with these things many times, you actually have to you have to decide whether it's real or not. People pop up and make up very detailed stories that are not true. I gave it to her and I said that I think it, this is true. There's, there's a lot of detail in it, um, which I, I'm sorry I can't say now. Sure, yeah. Um, there's so much detail in it about growing up in Belfast and just how she came about knowing who did it, that it was believable. And also the conflict in, in her own mind, she laid that out as well. You know, she was brought up in a certain way and this is a huge conflict in her own head. How have you been during all this? How difficult has it been for you going back and reliving all this? In my head, as soon as I did the interview with the Irish News, I knew it was public and I knew people would be interested. And so I was ready for that. I mean, I hadn't spoken about it for in my entire life until then, which is 40 years. Um I suppose I put on my game face and I knew what I was doing and I knew I was going to be talking about it and I I have embraced that. It is difficult. It's more when you're on your own and, you know, I'm pouring through stuff at home, you know, rather than, say, now when I'm, I'm speaking in public. Yeah, and you're it's more when I'm on it, my yeah. own in private. It's difficult. How often would you think about Peter? All the time, yeah. Um can't say every day, but several times a week, all the, all the time. Anytime, anytime anything in Belfast comes on TV, you would think about it. Anytime. I kept tabs on my friends as well, you know, what happened to them. And lots of them went to prison, you know. And the guy I kept a pageant with, Eugene McManus, he went to prison. Uh, Sean Toner went to prison. Francis Gill went to prison. Brandy Mead went to prison. Paul Graham, he went to prison. Uh, Leo Prey, who I just dug out a long cash handkerchief, which they used to send out to people. He, uh, Leo Prey, Hot 23, Cage 3. Um, Paul Graham, A-Wing, Kremlin Road Prison. So, you know, I kept in touch with Belfast just at a sort of level of knowing people, you know, rather than the politics of it. And every time it came up on the news, um, I would think of Peter, yeah. And the people he knew and I knew. This proposed legislation coming through in the UK government at the moment, which would rule out the possibility of future prosecutions. I know you said you're not looking for a prosecution in this mm. case, but uh, there'd be effectively an amnesty declared. Mm. Um, the UN, amongst others, has expressed concerns about this. What do you think about this development? It's a disgrace, but, you know, it's one of the many disgraces, you know, from the very first one I remember. Well, the very first one was the police standing around 
helping people burn other people's houses. The second one was introducing internment where hundreds of people from one community were put in prison for nothing. So they have a history. There is a history, not they, not blaming anyone, just the history of Northern Ireland is one of discriminating against people. And the British love their military. They will always, always protect their military. And this is just another instance of it. I mean, the Ballymurphy cases and the Derry cases very clearly soldiers shooting civilians and they're going to protect those soldiers that's what they're doing Johnny listen we, we wish you well on this search um, it's pretty amazing what you're doing so we do wish you well we'll take a quick break now and we'll be back in a moment thank you second captain first captain whatever you're listening to Second Captain Saturday with Owen McDevitt and Kieran Murphy. Johnny Watterson of the Irish Times has been talking to us about his incredible life this afternoon. We've yet, yet to really touch on sport, Johnny. We're going to talk about your own hockey career momentarily. <laughs> <laughs> but before that, we shouldn't laugh. It's an international career. This, the secret mm. hockey career. Exactly. It blossomed in Dublin and it didn't exist in West Belfast. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I can, I can imagine. We'll talk about that. But your sporting pedigree goes back even further because you've mentioned your dad a couple of times. George, George yeah. is the name of your father. George, Geordie, as people call them. Yeah. <laughs> Big guy in the in, in, in Antrim GA captain, huge captain. Yeah, um, former players used to come to the shop and they'd chat, and the local priests would be big into football, looking down at the shop. And I remember Father McCall most of all. He was the nine o'clock mass guy in St John's Parish, the fastest mass in history, twenty minutes. So all <laughs> the kids went to nine o'clock mass, and Father McCall would come and do its pools on the Saturday. Um, football pools I don't think they were supposed to but anyway did them in a, a, did them in our sitting room where no one could see him but you had this conglomeration of people I never saw my father play my, my experience of my father is through the prism of people talking about him okay um, because he, his career was finished when I was born and then he died when I was nine years old I saw an exhibition match up in Casement Park um, I was a ball boy for that but by then he was in his 40s and it was, you know, bit part stuff. And I was a kid anyway, more interested in the buns. So I, <laughs> his career, that semi-final beating Cavan, who were on a big run at the time, um, and then losing to Kerry, that all came to me through other people. What know. did people say to you then about him as a player? What did you learn about what he was like and how important a figure he was in the setup? They wouldn't sit down and tell me, this is how your dad was. They'd say, you know, are you going to be as good as your old man? The <laughs> guy? Or, or, no, they wouldn't call it guy. They'd call it guy, like, correctly call it guy, like football. <laughs> I know, I remember my mum telling me that she'd only buy me football boots if I played gay like football. Of course I said yes. <laughs> um, and I did, it wasn't a lie. Uh, but, you know, I got one year of gay like football in St Mary's. And then I left because Peter was killed. So th- that was about it. Murph, you've got a description, I believe, of George Watterson. What kind yes, of a player he was? Fullback. So this is from fullback, the Irish yeah. Not the burliest of fullbacks by any means, but George was a wiry, tall defender who could deal with any style of opponent. He played during an era when full forwards and fullbacks were usually big, strong and sometimes immobile players. But he was different. He made full use of the lean frame he had to man the square with confidence. <laughs> he was lean. Yeah. But then I remember that semi-final. I think Kerry did jiu-jitsu on Antrim. <laughs> yeah, and maybe just, the leanest wasn't so, yeah, wasn't such a benefit. Then. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a crazy story. This is Antrim's <clears throat> last great football team. George was captain of the Ulster title winning team of 1946. And to put that into context, they beat Cavan, who won the Polo Grounds final the following year. Right. So this is one of the really great Ulster football teams of all time. Antrim beat Cavan in 46. George was centre-back that year, captain. 
So an absolute linchpin. Mm. We're talking football royalty here. And then there was this infamous All-Ireland semi-final against Kerry in 1946 when Antrim put in an objection to Central Council saying that Kerry brought the game into disrepute by fouling Antrim as often as they did during the That's course right. of the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it is kind of, it's, it's quite a famous incident in sort of like post-war yeah. football. The hand passers, the hand yeah. passers of Antrim, hanky ball players. Mm. Was that it? So Antrim had a sort of they're fancy hand passer style and, and, and yeah, carried it and take, take two guys. No, they, mm. they just did the jujitsu and that was it, you know, and muscled them out of it. Yeah, Antrim's objection alleged that members of the Kerry team indulged in rough play and that these <laughs> tactics before 30,000 people were calculated to bring the GA into disrepute but that objection was thrown out by central councils so uh, that would have been controversial if Kerry had been kicked out of the championship. It was. For, yeah, for you've no Antrim, fouling. Antrim yeah. lads, yeah. yeah. You've mentioned it be, before we talk about the hockey you've mentioned pigeons a couple of times this is this is even more of a, a secret career of Johnny Waters. Than it, no, but this counts as a sport Murph, doesn't no, it? And, and it, does it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, definitely. Myself and Eugene McManus had our couple of pigeons. Everyone had pigeons. Was this inspired by Marilyn Brando in On the Waterfront or something? (laughs) (laughs) I was too young for that, but I subsequently saw it and then Mike Tyson was a pigeon keeper as well. Just I was fascinated with with birds and I used to sit on walls watching them. Um, They'd be circling the area, swirling around the place then landing on the roofs and they'd come down low and you could I was, I was writing about it recently, actually, and you could feel the air pressure change when there's 60 birds were coming low and, mm. you know, and I was fascinated by this. So I got a few pigeons and myself and Eugene McManus started our pigeon shed, which you're ah. supposed to build up into a big one. Um, but when I was on holiday, someone left the gate open before they had been homed, which is they come back. Mm. I suspect my mom. She's, <laughs> she's not here to defend herself, so I'm not going to blame her on it. Yeah, yeah. So you moved to you moved to Dublin, as you said, and that's where the hockey came into your life. Yeah, I went to a Protestant school in Dublin uh, from Belfast called New Park, and they played hockey. I'd never heard the game except from the comics I read. In the, I read all the comics, girls and boys. So Bunty and Judy and Mandy, they all had hockey players in them. Um, they were all girls, so I associated hockey as a a girls game until I got to Dublin and yeah I just started playing hockey it was the sport in that, school that is such <clears throat> an Im- immense culture shock coming from where you came from forget it just and even forgetting about whatever your mental state which I don't know what it was like at that time but to be transplanted into this world where you're going to a Protestant school playing hockey absolutely bizarre complete transformation I sort of felt I was dreaming it sometimes at the beginning the first couple of months the lack of fear and the lack of violence was the obvious thing. Um, I went to live with my mum's sisters. As I s- said earlier, it was serendipitous because they were be- beautiful families. Um, Marie and Una at the beginning and her other sister in Bundorn then during the summers. Um, I was like, I was dreaming. I was tr- probably traumatised, you know, but s- s- such a friendly environment. I, ha- I had never had experience of that sort of caring um, that the school had, not just the teachers who were curious about you and, and gentle, but the people in the school as well. The other kids were were gentle kids. They were largely Church of Ireland kids. And I subsequently know that Church of Ireland people, I know this is stereotyping them or generalising them, but I don't care, very gentle people. And the, that religion is, is a really gentle religion. And that was how I saw New Park. It was a Straight away, it was a safe space. That's how I saw it, you know. Now you went on to play at a high level, a club level, and to play internationally for Ireland in 
wor- you, you went as far as a World Cup and you also won a silver medal at the European Junior Championships in Dublin. We're reliably informed this is the only Irish team ever to get to a final of that competition. This is a good, yeah. this is more than a good <laughs> career. This is a very, very unique career. I didn't play in the World Cup, but yeah, I played the qualifiers. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, that'll, that'll do for me. Mm. <laughs> yeah, look, within, I was 14, no, it was 13 when I went down. By 16 or 17, I was playing in Irish schools hockey team and I was thinking, this is wrong. I should be playing hurling. I should be up at, I should be up in Croaks where my cousin Liam was playing. Um, but I just loved it and I made friends and yeah, I got good at it. Um, really quickly. That's incredible to get so good at something so quickly. I played, played a bit of hurling as well. So yeah. the, hitting the ball was was okay, you know, sort of basics. And then you learn the, the rest of the stuff. But uh, I really enjoyed the game. At 16, I had to decide whether it's up to 16, I was playing everything. And then when you start getting on, you know, Irish schools, teams. You can't, you have to stick with one. You, just, you can't do it. You, know? you once played a game with a collapsed lung. I did, yeah. Um, my famous captain's here lasted about a month uh, for the club. I played, I'd say I played about four weeks with a collapsed lung. I was, <laughs> I was, <laughs> what? I, tell you, I was substituted one one time um, because I wasn't playing well enough. And it was the only time I was substituted and I was on antibiotics and everything, it wasn't working. And I went in for an X-ray and it collapsed lung. Happened three times in the end, and that's uh, one of my many injuries. One of my many injuries, <laughs> I have to say. Yeah. We've been told by multiple sources that you were one of the best ball strikers <laughs> in Ireland. Do you agree with this assessment? <laughs> I don't know if you heard that, but uh, I can tell you visually that Johnny nearly choked on his bottle of water here. <laughs> You need a casualty there, yes. This is this is such serious. But we've talked to people. We've talked to Lenny Abramson, who once won a couple of games of pool and spun about fifteen minutes out of it. Whereas here, Johnny, I feel like we're having to. You've been so open on everything, but we're having to drag this out of you. You're quite modest about this career. You must you must be proud of playing for Ireland. Somewhere. Yeah, look, it was great, and um, I, I, you know, I was thinking about. It. I got to play with my friends, and we travelled all around the world together, and I sort of liked that aspect of it. Um, my career was broken up by injury, collapsed lung, and took off to Paris for a while. I took off to San Francisco for a year. So I was always leaving it and coming back. I was I probably wasn't that professional about it in that respect because I wanted to do other things. And I, after doing it for 10 years, I wanted to go to Paris for six months. I wanted to go to San Francisco for a year. And I did that at 26. Mm. I should have been motoring. Career-wise, at twenty-six, but were you so. were you doing were you into journalism at this stage? No, this, that was the, that was a later part. I did get into journalism through hockey. Okay, the Irish Independent. I was going to a tournament. In, I can't remember where it was. Um, it was in Europe somewhere. They asked me, "Would you send back a few pars?" And I said, "I'll ask the management." And they said that was okay, and that's how it started. I wrote about myself playing in a tournament. <laughs> Three paragraphs and scores. Nine out of ten player, yeah, yeah, player, player ratings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so what's the highlight? It doesn't have to be hockey. It could be the, the you know, keeping those pigeons on the falls row. But what's the highlight of your own sporting career? It's probably, you mentioned it, playing the European final. The reason was, A, we got to the final. And generally, you didn't win anything playing for Ireland in hockey. And we are finally going to win a medal. And again, my friends... You know, I was still in school. I was, uh, I think I was 18. And it was also in Dublin. And there was just this nice feeling about it. But more, we did that. I did that with people I knew, people I went to school with, people who were in my class. And 
So yeah, that would that be that would be my highlight. Not my first cap, dreary all night in London, getting mm. beaten by England. That couldn't be a highlight, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now we'll go with that. I think this is this Murph. Malcolm Gladwell's in trouble here. Do you remember the four hundred meter hurdler at the Olympics who mm. smashed the previous world record but still didn't win the gold medal? Yeah, exactly. Mm. It could be that's where Gladwell could be after this. Can you please rank this sporting life okay. of Johnny Watterson? You don't understand I could have had class. You don't have stars in this game, Mrs. Weaver. Well, what do you have then? People like me. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Okay, Johnny, I'm afraid it's the moment you've been dreading, the moment when I size you up, evaluate your career sporting highlight, nominate a sports person that I feel most closely resembles you, and then give you a score out of 100. 88 is the score to beat, remember, that's Malcolm Gladwell, and you, I think, have every right to feel bullish. There's a chance. But. First, well, first of all, well, we'll, run through the, we'll run through the process first. First of all, you come from all-time great GA stock. You're a pigeon fancier. You've covered every sport under the sun at multiple Olympic Games. Not only that, serious international hockey player, getting capped for your country, qualifying for a World Cup, qualifying for a European final. Your defensive leadership and relentless competitiveness, even finishing games and playing for three or four weeks with a collapsed <laughs> lung. Well, this reminds me of Dirk Kaiser himself, Franz Beckenbauer, who, of course, once played a World Cup semi-final in 1970 with a broken collarbone. So everything is trending in the right direction. You're accumulating points here at a quite frankly dizzying rate. Points added for being so forward thinking that you obsessively read Bunty as a kid as well. <laughs> However, now, actually, sorry, just give me one I've actually just been handed a letter here, so you'll have to bear with me. Okay, so a query has been raised by some of your fellow competitors this year. Um, renowned Amer- I'm literally just reading this as I'm talking to you now. Uh, renowned American novelist Richard Ford and Irish poet laureate in waiting Dern Negrifa have set up an advisory group called Concerned Artists for Fair Play. That's CAF <laughs> for short. And CAF have alerted me to Rule 62, Paragraph 3, Clause 7 of the bylaws, which calls for a 50-point deduction if the guest in question was an actual real-life, competed-at-the-highest-level sports person. So, you've scored 99 points, but you do, however, carry that 50-point deduction, so it's 49 points gross. Johnny Watson, a very disappointing finish to be robbed of your title in a committee room, but this has been your sporting life. I agree with that regulation. (laughs) (laughs) Bottom of the table, unfortunately. A little bit harsh. Round of applause, ladies here. That extraordinary chat with Johnny has meant we're pretty much out of time this week. Oh. We're back next Saturday with Orla Gear and the BBC's international correspondent. We're very excited to have Orla on for what will be the final episode of the series this year. Ah, oh. just, just this year. In the meantime, you can check us out on secondcaptains.com where you'll find independent ad-free shows daily. Saturday Sport is coming right up on RT Radio 1 with live coverage of Kerry versus Tyrone in the All-Ireland Football Semi-Final. And if the Kerry players happen to be listening on the way up to Croke Park, lads, none of your roughhouse tactics like in the 46 semi-final against Ottawa. Let's just keep it clean this time, all right? The, the, the shrinking violets coming down from the north, uh, uh, from Tyrone in particular today, they, they just wouldn't appreciate that sort <laughs> of thing. They would not appreciate any sort of, yeah, exactly. Thanks to Killian Down on research, Mark Organ and Simon Hick for producing the show. Thanks to Jack in studio Mark McGrath on sound thank you Murph thanks old most importantly thanks for listening we'll talk to you again next week take care